Yo, T-Bone, did you produce this? Sounds good, right? So I went in my parents' loft the other day. I went there for a very specific mission. There's a couple of things I really wanted to find. One of them was my Commodore Amiga 600, which is a computer I loved when I was a kid. Played on it loads. But the other was a computer I probably loved but I remember it being really temperamental. Probably didn't appreciate it for what it was at the time. It's my Spectrum ZX, it's the 48K, the ZX Plus, the 48K version, external cassette player to plug into it. Oh, this era of gaming, it really takes me back. It was when an individual could make a game, write the code for it, get a publisher to make it, you know, put it on cassette, and get it out there. So you've got these really eccentric games, obviously the classic. You can hear it there, hear that cassette. That's Jet Set Willy. But listen, right, I'm just gonna take a cassette out of London. So I wanted to just talk about how cassettes sort of make me feel. And I booted up this Spectrum. And guess what, it worked first time, which is amazing. As I listen to that sound, not only could I, was I taken right back to seeing the accompanying loading screens, the stripes of colour around a big, empty, white square in the middle of the screen. And those stripes of colour down the outside first, maybe reds and blacks, and as the game got closer to loading, the blues and yellows, those tapes, not only but just looking at them, the, the beautiful graphics on them, listening to those sounds, and thinking about that game, takes me right back, I remember feelings, hell of a thing for stirring up memories these tapes. So, so in the days when I was playing on my Amiga, right, and I was just playing Sensible World of Soccer, probably for perhaps eight or nine hours a day, um, you were making music on the thing. What was I missing? What was, what, was, what was going on? It felt like a game to me, actually, because I liked playing Sensible. So my dad had gone, kind of gone, here's a MIDI interface, here's a, like, a little Yamaha synthesizer. So uh, that a musician? Then? No. No, but he he's a he was into computers very early on, and so we had computers from when I was really young, which was was definitely unusual. Like at that point, like and I'm talking like uh, early eighties. So it's just kind of geeky like that. So the idea of actually making music through sort of like networked devices was was appealing to to him in his head. When I said that what I wanted was like a keyboard with a thousand buttons on it that played like backing rhythms and stuff like that because I, w I just suddenly decided I wanted to get into music so he got me that and I just didn't really get it because I wanted the keyboard with all the buttons and pushy things and stuff 
I'm Scrimshire, and I run Albert's Favourites, and uh, yeah, I work with a bunch of different artists. I'm a mix engineer and mastering engineer and um, music producer. A few months later, I just kind of, I don't know, it just kind of, I was like, I should really check out what this is about rather than just playing games all the time on the Amiga. And so, yeah, I plugged in my MIDI interface and plugged it into the synthesizer. I was using Octomed, which I'd got off the cover of, what was it? What was the magazine? Amiga, Amiga format. So I took it off that month and I put it in and then it was just this world of complete newness. I just kind of got really quickly obsessed with it. And it was all I wanted to do was try and work out how to make these sounds that I was hearing on records. There's some really rubbish stuff. I was like really into Genesis and Phil Collins at the time. The sort of like family home, as it were, didn't really sort of like last beyond when I moved out of London because the family kind of split and everything. So I've always had all my stuff with me, and, and thankfully I've, you know, there's certain things that I'm like, no, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, gonna hold on to that. And yeah, there's this like box of cassettes of like absolute rubbish that's just been in lofts or back of cupboards for years. I have gone through it over the years occasionally, and. I think expecting to find a different story about it, but it doesn't change. It's the same music. Music's a, a constant up and down of, 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 of self-value, right? And sense of whether you're progressing or not. And when I was going back and listening to these songs, it's funny how present in my mind they still are, actually. You know, like, it's 30 years ago, right? I was putting on songs that I haven't heard in 30 years and knowing immediately where the melodies are going. There was one that I put on that didn't have vocals recorded for it, but I knew the lyrics and the words like straight away. I'm listening back to something and going, man, and also like some of my lyrical things, you know, it's 14 year old writings who's got no real harsh life experience at all and lives in a really loving, caring family home, you know. And I was just felt a bit embarrassed. I was like, oh my God, this is, there's so much trash in here. I mean, I was trash and I was making people listen to it. And I just had a moment just going, wow, wow. As a 45 year old man, how can you be so mean to this 14 year old kid who had only just picked up an instrument and was just trying to find something that he was passionate about and, and, and explore it and just open up his mind and be creative. I'd done this with a therapist a little while ago about sort of like looking backwards at yourself and forgiving yourself those mistakes because imagining yourself who you were then. And I just like, I do some mentoring now and I was like, if I was like behaving with one of my, my, my mentees, who's like 14, 15 years old, the way that I'm talking about myself, That'd be so cruel, it'd be awful. So yeah, it's like this process of having to go, do you know what? Back off this kid. <laughs>
don't you need to offer that kid some gratitude as well? Because like you know that if that kid hadn't done that, like you wouldn't be doing music as a job now, you know? Yeah, totally. I need to make that next step. It's a really good point. I need to think about that as well. The other day I was asked what sort of my goals had been and what my sort of like situation is now. And, and, and you know, I'd always want to, I'd have visualised around 15, 16, I remember really clearly this visual that I wanted to run a record label, that I wanted to be a musician, that I wanted to have a recording studio that we could welcome and create this residential space that people could explore and do things and we could connect all these three things together in this really beautiful kind of holistic way. You know, there's um, so many of the steps along the road to doing that. I mean, some people would have done those things quicker, but I'm doing it, and and yeah, and and I do have gratitude for the fact that I was I started on that line, that my family gave me the opportunity to do that, and that that they they like all these songs that I'm listening to on this tape that I'm like sort of like taking a piss out of now. They listen to all of them. You know, I'd go, come and listen to this. I've written to this. You know, I've written this, you know. And my gramp, you know, Albert of Albert's Favourites fame, he would come up and he'd sit on a beanbag at the back of the room and listen to this latest six-minute nonsense that I'd created and, like, be positive about it. And and the family would come up in groups and listen to stuff and I'd share it with them and that. And so, you know, it's that environment that enabled me, really, to, to go, yeah, and be doing what I'm doing now. They've never questioned it, you know. not something so fun. It was the death of a boyfriend. My name is Summer and I'm the founder and chief curator of the Mixtape Museum. His name is Justo. He was the founder of the Mixtape Awards. He gave DJs awards for doing dope-ass mixtapes and being innovative and being entrepreneurial and taking the mixtape and using it to uh, launch careers, right, and brands for themselves. Kid Capri, Brucey e. B, Kay Slay, who unfortunately just passed away last year. Ghetto to ghetto, the backyard to yard, I sell it whip on whip, it's off the hard. I'm the neighborhood pusher, call me subwoofer, cause I pump it like that jack on a off. I met Justo because I was working with the Clips, who were out of Virginia. There was a point when we were on Jive and we were going to court with the label and couldn't put out an album. And they were like, we're gonna put out a mixtape. Great. Right? Until they land in my house and there's boxes and I'm like, what am I supposed to do with all these mixtapes? I grew up on 14th Street in New York City. So it's like not far from the East Village, Canal Street, 
14th Street on the west side where I bought mixtapes. Like, it was a, the greatest area to grow up in. I just didn't know how to get these mixtapes to the vendors that I bought tapes from. And someone was like, you gotta talk to Justo. And I was like, I don't know who that is. So I get in touch with Justo and I meet him in the village and he helps me distribute the Eclipse's mixtape. We drove around in his car. Like the, the, the holes in the wall, like the places where you didn't know you were supposed to be, <laughs> right? A lot of the vendors that were like pushing those tapes were like African and Chinese vendors. So on Canal Street, you often saw sheets with like tapes on them or like VHS. You know, you went through the evolution of technology in Canal Street. Those vendors would sell anything that you wanted, depending on what media was hot then. Justin and I started dating. That's what happened. That's 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 why this got so personal. Not only did he show me the impact of the tapes through like working with the clips, but like he taught me the history of that I completely just we were 10 years apart, so there was history I just didn't know, right? I didn't experience. How do I talk about, you know, what Justo taught me? And I was like, well, the information's not there. I have to generate it. <laughs> And that's what the Mixtape Museum was. I think it's hard to express because I think it's different for different people. Like most of my time was spent home in my bedroom with the door closed, like in private making tapes, right? That's where I listened to the music that my parents didn't want me to listen to or where I would listen to a tape that somebody gave me at school or at camp. Like I was big on taking tapes to camp because I live in the city and my mom shipped me off to like the burbs every summer. So I was like, you know, like lone black girl in New England, like camping and sailing and shit. So I had to take music with me, right? <laughs> but that's how I shared it with my, you know, with my friends who weren't from New York or even when I went to college in Virginia, I went to a historically black college, but they didn't have doo-wop 95 live. So when I took that tape to Virginia, it was the most copied tape that I've ever had. And it still plays. Just one of those days when I wanna be with my crew. And we're hanging outside, puffing, lying, drinking, bro. Just one of those days. Yeah. There were tapes that followed me from childhood that I still have, and I there's a connection with them that I still have, you know? One tape has recording me recording from the radio as like a kid and recording Red Alert. What time is it? It's time for DJ 
that same tape I used to record me and my daughter like 15 years later. So when I digitized that, I was like, oh my gosh, like it's red alert commercials, me and a toddler. Where else can you do that and like invoke memory and emotion? When I think about those tapes, it makes me remember things that I might have forgotten while I'm sitting here in front of my radio, right? Like, why did I make that tape? Oh, I forgot. I was sad. Or, oh my God, I was really happy. So I feel like for me, especially during quarantine, it, I started to remember why I really love tapes because I had time to go through all my old stuff. And I think that's what it is. It evokes memory that I thought I forgot. For the tapes that did just make it out of, you know, different neighborhoods, not just in the Bronx, but just anywhere, it helped mix communities, right? Because I could take a tape from downtown Manhattan and then I could give it to Paradise up in the Bronx and then he could go and put other people on it. And then you can mix genres of music. The Bronx, Queens, you know, Staten Island, Long Island's not a borough, but we'll give them some props. You know, all of those places like they, a lot of those neighborhoods met on a cassette somewhere. There's a book called Harlem World. It's all about the Harlem World battle. The battle at the Harlem World Club, which is a few blocks from me. And it talks about how the cassette being recording that battle if it hadn't recorded it, a lot of questions would not have been answered. So the cassette was the hero because it not only captured like a really important piece of history, it's a time capsule, right? It preserved a lot of those stories. I'm trying to use this fancy microphone. Hang on one second. I'm John Mill, I'm the author of Harlem World, available now worldwide. They had this guy named Tape Master who would go, put his boombox in front of the speaker, hit record, and then go and party. And then he would sell those cassettes at a um, stand at the Bronx Terminal Marketplace. The tape becomes this critical thing because, remember, these people are not making records. If I want to hear Cold Crush... Fantastic Five, Treacherous Three, Fearless Four, you know, all these other groups, I would need the cassette. It's July the 3rd, 1981. The first uh, time that AIDS is in the newspaper, right? I just found that to be kind of a significant thing. I wrote earlier in the book about, like, the Bronx is burning in the 70s, but the 80s presented their own new challenges, and I think it's interesting and symbolic that it was called GRID at the time, Gay-Related Immune Disorder. But that was the first day that that term was used in the New York Times. The Bronx was still burning, but we're kind of now transitioning into the 80s. Harlem kind of served as, I want to say like the showplace for hip-hop. The biggest venue, it's called Harlem World, which opened in 1977. It could fit at least a thousand people. It had a giant disco ball a beautiful stage with like this weird backdrop of like aliens and stuff. And it actually had a full-time crew who lived there on the third floor. 
what the Grand Ole Opry is for country music. That's kind of what Harlem World was in the early days of hip-hop music. What's up, fly guy? Hello, fly girl. It's the big soldier. That's Harlem World. The Gold Crush Boys. That's a fantastic five. They ain't no cop. Real eat them alive. Because we're the best. And when it comes to rap, man. And like the fly said, we were proud to hack. Because the time is come. And let the battle begin. And let the crowd be the judge. Cold Crush Brothers had two DJs, DJ Charlie Chase and DJ Tony Tone, and they had four MCs. Their leader was Grandmaster Kaz. I don't think you have modern hip-hop without him. Then you have JDL, Almighty KG, Easy AD. The Fantastic Romantic Five... Their DJ was Grand Wizard Theodore, like Kaz, a completely critical figure to the history of hip-hop. Their crew was Master Rob, Kevy Kev, MC Ruby D, Prince Whipper Whip, and the late Daughter Rock. They wanted to be like Gladys Knight and the Pips. They looked excellent. They were dressed impeccably. They had coordinated dance moves, all the best outfits, all the best fashions. Cold Crush was more the group of the people. To these groups, it was not about having hit records. This was the the end-all, be-all, is being able to do the best live show they could and have a crowd judge them as the best. Cold Crush decided they wanted all new routines, new show, we're going to knock them out. What we don't want to do is just get up here and just do shit you don't seen and did and, you know, just wear shit we wore before and things like that, you know? We come out to get a little something different. They had fewer fans than Fantastic. Fantastic was very popular with the ladies. They screamed for them. They asked to buy their phone numbers. See, this is like, you might say our anniversary tonight, you couldn't say that. Because us and the Fantastic Five started out about the same time. Yep. And they done tore shit up where they went, and we done tore shit up where we went. But now we tear shit up where they go. The two crews met in the upstairs at Harlem World, and they said, well, we have $1,000. If you want, we can do 700 to the winner, 300 to the loser. You can each get 500 And they all looked at each other, and they were just like immediately like, nope, winner take all. Has to be winner take all. Cold Crush were on stage for upwards of a half hour. They had amazing, amazing material. Everything they did was was just spectacular. Fantastic comes up, and they're only on stage for 15 minutes. A lot of that is taken up by a dance routine. Theodore displays his amazing DJing. He starts off by just playing Square Biz by Tina Marie. And everyone just, you can hear it on the tape clearly, everyone's just screaming. People loved Cold Crush. But when they, when they said, like, all right, if you think Fantastic won, people were just freaking out, screaming. Now, seriously, because this is what it's going to be, if y'all going to judge the people. Did we you win? Know it? I mean, seriously, did we win? We did the Cold Crush. Did the Cold Cuts for a lose? Yeah. All right, now. See it all go cut with the handcuffs for Charlie Chase. 
The cassette for the battle was very popular. People made a bunch of copies of it. The people who just listened to the cassette and weren't in the building thought the Cold Crush was far superior. And they would come up to Kaz and Charlie Chase and say, how did you guys not win? Their lyrics were better. Their routines were sharper. So it kind of creates this like tension that is still debated to this day among old hip-hop heads, but most famously among the groups themselves. Every time they see each other, they talk about, oh, you know, we won that night. I think it's one of the sadder parts of the book, that these crews are so responsible for the success of the genre, but the genre kind of left them. The story here is actually kind of a universal story, though, of what happens to the crews, where they had a lot of fun in their teens, and then all of a sudden, guys start leaving. Like their parents said, go get a job. And so, you know, you have guys going into the military. You have guys that just decide to work. Prince Whipperwhip still works as a nurse in Detroit. And uh, sometimes his patients ask him why he's walking around singing so much. <laughs> to me, these guys are heroes. But, you know, and we see this a lot when you study history, right? Like, people have their peak moments, but eventually they just go back into being family guys and doing jobs. And I do think that's sad. We should remember that, though. We should all remember that, you know. And if everything's just a moment. Exactly. Thank you to Jonathan Mayle for speaking to me. His book, Harlem World, about the battle at the Harlem World Club, is out now. Thanks also to Summer McCoy from the Mixtape Museum find that at mixtapemuseum.org and thanks to Scrimshire for being so generous with his demos from when he was a 14 year old kid being so open and honest thank you Scrimshire this episode was recorded produced and sound designed by me Tom Wally thanks for listening yo T-Bone did you produce this sounds good right 